Proliferation of distributed energy resources into a high DER future is both necessary and inevitable. It's necessary because today's needs require local solutions, not just decarbonization of the bulk power system. We have immediately immediate concerns about resilience. We have immediate concerns about energy justice. We have clean energy initiatives being proposed by local governments, tribes, and communities. It's inevitable because the cost and performance trends are showing us that DERs are becoming more cost effective, their performance improves, their prices go down, while at the same time, the bulk power system, the utility system in general, is getting more expensive and not necessarily showing any improved performance. Add to this the time it takes to build utility scale generation and transmission, and it's gonna be very difficult to meet climate related uh, decarbonization targets. When I say distributed energy resources or DERs, I mean everything that's connected at distribution level below the bulk power system, not just customer resources behind the meter. Too often the discussions about DERs are really just focusing on what customers own and invest in. I wanna make it a much bigger uh, umbrella to cover everything that can be connected at distribution level, especially and including uh, local community level resources. So the challenge for us facing the necessity and the inevitability of DER proliferation, those of us who work in energy policy spaces need to think about how do we best maximize the benefits and manage the challenges of rapid DER growth? With distributed resources, it's important to recognize that the utility system becomes contestable. That means customers with financial resources can defect and defection gets more cost effective and attractive every day as the technologies improve. So in a way then our challenge becomes, how do we create a network that makes it more attractive to stay connected and participate rather than customers just investing in their own distributed resources for private benefits and defecting from the grid. And what I propose is the way to do that is to create a participatory transactive distribution side. Well, how do we do that? Look at the full range of value and benefits that DERs can provide. Today, most of the focus is on customer benefits for behind the meter. That is using them for demand shifting, for demand flexibility, things that, that help out the system, but are largely behind the meter load management. We need to get broader than that. There is some consideration of wholesale market value. FERC order 2222 opens the door for wholesale market participation, but that's moving very slowly in implementation. There's very little recognition and enabling of distribution level benefits. And that's where I think most of the potential uh, new things can happen that really make a difference. So locating supply and storage resources close to load in the neighborhood, in the community, reducing the need for grid infrastructure investment as utilities modernize to be able to manage a high DER grid, the longer term benefits are going to be reduced investment in building new infrastructure capacity. And from an energy justice perspective, decentralizing and democratize energy asset ownership and integration into local economies, because it's through ownership of assets that we can build wealth at the community level. 
So this requires a shift of thinking from a top-down mindset to a bottom-up. Start from the needs for electricity at the end-use level. Think about electricity and energy in general as a social determinant of health. That's a term from sociology, but in a way, energy is like food, water, and clean air. It really affects the quality of life of people. It's not simply a commodity that they procure. Then invest in local energy planning capabilities so that local governments, tribes, communities can plan and implement local projects to meet local needs. Meet new electrification demand through local resources rather than sending all of that to the utility system, which is a common assumption in planning today. Think of the bulk system then as residual energy supply after meeting electricity needs through a combination of customer sited and community level resources. What's required? I start with a community energy bill of rights. That is in state law, create a statute that, and that says communities, local governments, agencies, tribes can create their own electricity supply and storage resources to meet local needs. And they have a right to connect those to the utility system so that they can transact. There's some distribution utility reform required to provide a platform for this transactive distribution side and to define services that DERs can provide economically and earn revenues and compensation. Enable local production of energy to serve local customers without going through the bulk system. And finally, build agency staff to develop and maintain ongoing collaborative relationships with local leaders. It's not simply a matter of having meetings and workshops at the local level and hearing what people have to say. Really, we're talking about an energy transformation that is a different kind of relationship between the agencies that implement policy and the people, communities, and their leadership on the ground who experience the outcomes of those policies. Thank you. We started in hard times to bring us all in, into the laughter through thick and through thin, for public power enthusiasts without and within. Roll on enthusiasts, roll on. Roll on enthusiasts, roll on. I'm Paul Dockery, a co-host of Public Power Underground and Senior Manager of Energy Resource Strategy Planning at Seattle City Light. Oh, nicely done, Paul. I'm Almaz Nagesh, co-host of Public Power Underground, Energy System Researcher and Power Planner for Tacoma Power. Joining Almaz and I this week, celebrity guest stars are Lorenzo Kristoff with a wonderful opening monologue. Uh, captured all of the topics we're going to talk about today. And Josh Keeling. Josh Keeling. Hi. Josh Keeling is a board member. You're good, Josh, for Grid Forward, Senior Vice President of Market Development at Utility API, and was once the manager of distributed resource strategy and product development at Portland General Electric. Josh has a PhD, ABD, in systems science. He swears he's going to get around to that dissertation soon. I believe in you, Josh. You're going to get it it's done. And and, uh, and an all-around nice person, I can personally vouch for that. Josh is embarrassingly nerdy about e-bikes and is weathering the emotional roller coaster of being a lifelong Blazers fan. I don't know what that means, but welcome, Josh. Paul does. Yeah. 
it's a tough summer for us. That's okay. yeah, uh, really that very tough. I'm a lifelong Notre Dame football fan, and that has been a very tough row as well in my lifetime. Mm. That's my stepdad's a Notre Dame guy. Went to grad school yeah. there, so I have to feel yeah. that pain as well. Yeah. Well, welcome, Josh. It's excited to have you. Uh, big, yeah. sh- like a big shoes to follow in, or footsteps to follow in on Lorenzo's opening monologue. Really but we're going to be. Yeah. It's going to be great. Well, luckily, we're going to put some space between it, so it'll be okay. That's right. Joining Almaz, Josh, and I is Lorenzo Kristoff with the wonderful opening monologue. Lorenzo is an independent thinker focused on electric system policy, structure, and market design. He's an advisor to Stratagen and Rocky Mountain Institute. He worked as the principal for market and infrastructure policy at the California Independent System Operator when he was a lead designer of the locational marginal price, pricing-based market structure Kaiso implemented in 2009. Lorenzo has a doctorate in economics. Welcome, Lorenzo. Hey, thank you so much. Glad to be here. I like was taking notes during your opening monologue. I think, I mean, I think we want to dig into a lot of those things you touched on. And it did actually bring me back to our last episode with Anna Summers and Rick O'Connell from Grid Lab, where we talked a lot about reliability planning uh, across the specter, including the distribution system. And Anna Summers closing, like, uh, what we call PUC for a day thought that the third party administrator of some of these programs is really important to enable it. So I think this is a good Brit. That was a good prep for this and it's a bridge a continuing conversation. So I'm very excited about this. Anything about your background you'd want to add before we, we kind of dive deeper into these dir topics? Well, I think the, the thing that I would just mention is that while I was working at the CAISO um, back in 2013 was really when I started thinking about distributed resources. And of course, I looked at it from the ISO perspective. We run the wholesale market. We run the bulk power system. I was a market design guy. Um, but I realized that with a few DERs, we were thinking about how do we manage them in the bulk markets. And I just started imaginatively leaping forward to 10 and 20,000 DERs on the system. And how does that work? And that really set me down the path that led to the kinds of things I'm working on today. It's a wonderful origin story for your superhero uh, superhero <laughs> origins. So uh, exciting. I think we're going to get into way deeper on all of these topics. Um, I'm ready to dive in. You ready? Yes, go for it. Let's do it. On Public Power Underground, we talk about the electric utility enthusiasm trifecta of electrification, markets, and people. On today's episode of Public Power Underground, we're talking about maximizing the deployment of distributed energy resources. We'll talk about FERC 2222, maximizing the distribution level and customer value of DERS, international examples of unbundling the functions of distribution utilities, and the 80-20 rule for interconnecting distributed energy resources. We have to do it all quickly because we have to get to Almaz's unscripted and unfair question in a segment we call Almaz's insightful question of the week. And then we get to get to Josh's closing thoughts where he really is gonna knock it out of the park in a follow-up to Lorenzo's opening monologue. Uh, when we get back, optimism. I'm very optimistic. So everybody's gotta stick around or just jump forward. Frankly, there'll be a timestamp. You can jump there if you really <laughs> wanna skip to the middle. But if you want to get into the weeds on all this stuff, uh, after we come back, I'm going to start out with a quick game. Energy Northwest is proud to provide clean, abundant, and reliable energy to help meet our growing needs. Energy Northwest is proudly advancing the Northwest's clean energy future. I knew that. Yeah, of course. I knew that. I knew that. 
They also have a great training program, which isn't in this promo, but I'll just provide it as a promo as well. It's, they have a great internship program uh, where college graduates can get an internship through Energy Northwest. Uh, I've talked about it many times on this podcast. I'm a big fan of that program. Wasn't in this ad read. They didn't write it in, but I'm just inserting it because I'm such a big fan. All right. Well, sign up, boys and girls. Learn more about nuclear energy and its full potential at energy-northwest.com. That's energy-northwest.com. Because champions of DERS tend to get a little down on electric utilities. We want to start off with a segment we're calling Say Something Nice About Electric Utilities. I'll hand it over to Almaz to explain the segment. All right, so each of you have been challenged to bring a list of compliments for electric utilities. It's going to be a rapid fire back and forth, starting with you, Josh. Once Josh has provided his compliment, Paul will either ding that it has passed the test of being a compliment or buzz if it sounds too much like a backhanded compliment. If it passes the test of being a compliment, it'll go to you, Lorenzo, to say something nice about electric utilities, and then we'll go back and forth until somebody gets buzzed. First to get buzz loses the game. We good? Got it. Okay. All right. All right, Josh. All right. Great supporter of labor in the trades. Okay. Lorenzo. Um, A wealth of talented, brilliant, and dedicated staff. That feels like a kiss up to the... uh, to the utility that's folks. fine yeah. it yeah. counts it counts keep it coming it counts keep going keep going right. uh super good at excel <laughs> mean excel the utility or excel the spreadsheet no no they're good at excel like making spreadsheets they're killing it this is true okay right? go around the run zone. Um, essential to the der transition Oh, you guys are good. We're into electrification before it was cool. Nice. I like that one. Lorenzo. Mm, uh, They serve good lunch at meetings. Maybe. Getting a little little (laughs) close there. Getting close to the line. We'll allow it. Always there with the safety moment. Safety is important. It's a cultural aspect. It was really important. Lorenzo. Um, they have lots of lawyers. Uh, definitely. I, I think that cooler. ends the game. Oh, that, oh. <laughs> man, I have like I think 15 that ends more. <laughs> okay. That, let's hear next one, Josh. I, we, uh, I don't know. It is true that we have lots of lawyers. It felt a little backhanded, but we'll, we'll allow it again. Go ahead, Josh. Definitely way cooler than water utilities. Hey, we got crossover water utilities. Be careful there. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, seriously. Yeah. Okay. Do you have one more? I'm you're on thin ice here. They they love their customers. Oh, that's a great one. Oh, that's a great one. We got, I'm glad we got that one in. Okay. Back to you, Josh. Never going to skip town. Good one. There are ways to skip town without leaving town. (laughs) (laughs) 
Oh, that's a good place to end it. Oh, that didn't count. That was uh, that was that was a little rough. Wow. That was a little rough. That's a good place to end it. Okay. Uh, thank you for saying something nice about electric utilities. Uh, and let's move it to the next. Let's move it to the next segment. Sounds good. First order. 2222 instructs RTOs and ISOs to allow DER aggregations to participate directly into wholesale markets and establish a new category of market participants, namely DER aggregators. The order, which was adopted in September of 2022, I'm sorry, of 2020, is intended to enable participation of distributed energy resources, including behind the meter and front of the meter resources, directly connected to distribution utility infrastructure alongside traditional resources in the regional organized wholesale markets through aggregations. Uh, a primer for FERC Order 2222 published by NREL notes that, quote, perhaps the largest driver for Order 2222 is the desire to improve wholesale power markets so that price outcomes are more just and reasonable. Price responsive demand is an important part of a well-functioning market, but over the past two decades, large industrial loads have mostly filled that role. The new rule enables a wider array of, ro of loads to provide price responsive demand, end quote. So Josh, um, what would you highlight about FERC order 2222 and, and how its implementation has gone? Yeah, I mean, what I think is really interesting about 2222 is that it basically forces FERC to think about distribution. It's also fun to just watch FERC get really uncomfortable because they have to like start like talking about what distribution utilities are doing. And you can sense how they're getting a little bit nervous about getting over their skis on jurisdiction. Kudos to them for not getting sued. They did a pretty good job. It seemed like it was pretty, pretty like it, I, it's shocking because of how close they get into sort of over their jurisdictional skis. But what's what I think is really helpful, whether you're in a 2222 jurisdictional area or not is is what they do say specifically around the role of distribution utilities within like aggregated resources into wholesale markets. And there's three big categories uh, of things that they touch on. Um, one is the distribution override, which is that the utility has some ability to override the dispatch of DERs into wholesale based on distribution conditions like reliability, safety. Um, the other is the ability to do what's called a, a, a DERA review or registration. So that is the distributed energy resource aggregation review. What I think is interesting about this is it's sort of like the next evolution of interconnection. It's basically taking resources that have already been interconnected and then saying, how would we assess them differently if they're operated in aggregate against a wholesale signal? And that is like a totally new way of thinking about assessing the distribution network versus like the way it's traditionally been done. And then the last and the thorniest of the bunch is this issue around dual participation, which is to say that FERC is clear that a resource that is being compensated by a retail utility for a, for a service can't also be compensated within the wholesale market. That seems pretty straightforward theoretically, but gets real messy because of some of the sort of ambiguity that lives within how things like capacity and energy prices are sometimes treated, particularly in residential rates. Um, so what I think is great about that is that 2222 forces us to ask these questions and to try and come up with more streamlined market-wide solutions to dealing with them, which I think could go a long way, if implemented in good faith, could go a long way towards scaling 
uh, DERs and just help distribution utilities in their own operations. Nice so our next topic is around, I think, that nexus of the distribution value yeah. um, compared to the wholesale value. But before we get there, can you talk a little bit just on the status of where the jurisdictions are in implementing the, the yeah. 2222, just to have a level set where we are in implementation? Yeah, so it's a bit of a mixed bag. There's been, as is so often the case, a very dramatic difference. Like, separation in the implementation and uh, the sort of assertiveness with which these markets have embraced them. The state level markets, like the like some NISO and KISO, where you have a wholesale market that is within one state, were pretty much ahead of the game um, because of sort of policy mandates and, and the level of DER activity that was there. They had some form of aggregation tariff in place and there was some adjustment that needed to take place, but, but they at least gotten a head start. Um, the other markets, it, it's a little bit across the board. Um, there's a ton of sort of stakeholder processes that go into this because effectively what the ISOs have to do is bring together their state regulators, the utilities, and all the market participants into a conversation around these issues that historically have been dealt with at the state level. I think that's a really constructive conversation in most cases, but uh, it, it's a great way to make things work kind of slowly. Um, some some folks have gotten farther along the path. ISO New England, in particular, is is pretty well down the road and and basically there. Uh, MISO and SPP, uh, unsurprisingly, are sort of on the other side of the spectrum. I think MISO is supposed to implement somewhere around 2029, um, and they've gotten slapped around a bit uh, uh, about that. I think that it's it's not surprising that the utility or the markets wherein you have vertically integrated utilities are the ones that have had the hardest time with this because it's getting much more into sort of their business in a way that historically they haven't. I mean, a lot of those markets had opt-out states under uh, FERC 719. So they weren't, they didn't even have wholesale aggregation uh, in their markets already. So um, they're really struggling and that's been a bit more contentious. You know, I, I, um, I just had a comment. I think John, yeah covered the topic very well. I would just highlight the fact that once you move from resources that are just behind the meter modifying load to ones that are actually injecting power into the system, that creates a lot more challenges that distribution utilities have to think about. It makes the interconnection studies more complicated. It makes operations more complicated, potential problems, and so on. And yet it's a gap that FERC Order 2222 couldn't really address because it's not their jurisdiction to figure out operations by the distribution utility. And I think that's why we're seeing diversity of responses in different states, concern about how much is it going to cost to upgrade utility functional capabilities so that they can manage injecting resources and so on. So it's a legitimate uh, problem that's causing the progress to move slowly in many places at the same time, I think the order did a really excellent job of teeing up these questions and mm -hmm. triggering conversations that need to happen anyway. You know, even if the order didn't exist, I think utilities everywhere really need to start grappling with the high DDR future because as I started out with, it's it's happening. I couldn't agree more. I think one of the things to sort of piggyback on that is that uh, FERC 2222 requires, like basically forces a conversation around mixed asset aggregation, 
which historically hasn't really been much of a conversation, especially on the distribution networks. So like yeah. distribution planners typically don't have a particularly nuanced or dynamic view of load. So mm. load is sort of treated, you either look at peak load, minimum daytime load, you know, average load, but you don't often look at things like, oh, load is going to change in response to some condition and, and in some way is correlated and coincident with behavior that's happening on generation. That from a power flow perspective could be very good or very bad depending on the, the, the situation, but just modeling that in general is wholly new to most utilities. Um, that I think is a good conversation. We, we, we need to be having that conversation because of electrification anyways, because we need to have a much more nuanced view of, of load broadly in our distribution planning and, and operations, but it's forcing something to happen much faster than I think a lot of utilities were expecting. Yeah, that that dynamic around price responsive demand, um, because you will have human behavior and commercial behavior and economic behavior that's hourly responsive around loads um, was, I think, is really important. And there is a lot of modeling that needs to happen on the distribution level to be ready yeah. for that price responsive demand. Um, we teed up the next segment, so I think let's let's transition there and talk about um, from a distribution perspective, there is a lot of value not contemplated in FERC 2022. 20, 20, All right, so Lorenzo, um, well, FERC order 2222 does not address the potential benefits of DERs at distribution level, such as how they might be applied to improve distribution system performance um, or reduce the need for distribution system capacity expansion or provide more resilient electric service to withstand major disruptions due to climate change. Um, so Lorenzo, can you comment on these possibilities and how we might unlock them? Sure, great question, Almaz. Uh, so as, as we noted earlier, DERs uh, to a large extent are being viewed as load modifiers. They're behind the meter and they're shifting load or they're providing load flexibility. And then they can participate in the wholesale market under FERC Order 2222. But those are like the two extremes. When I think about why do DERs want to go into the wholesale market, I sort of think of it as the famous statement by um, uh, the bank robber Willie Sutton when asked why he robs banks, it's because that's where the money is. Right now, there only are markets at the bulk power system level. We don't have markets on distribution. So obviously there's no way to go there and, and get a revenue stream. And that to me is the missing part of it. So in, in some sense, ex enabling the value of DERs at distribution level to be realized is going to involve creating some market or market-like mechanisms. That is defining services that can be provided. How are those services measured? How are they procured? Um, how are they paid? What should they be paid, et cetera? Now, um, when I think of the value of DERs at distribution level, I think a primary one is simply locating supply resources close to load. And for the most part, the paradigm that we have about that is fictional. The way you treat power injected into the power grid, if you have a front of meter resources, I'm putting aside net energy metering, but, but just take a resource that's connected at distribution level. If it injects power into the grid, by the laws of physics, that power flows to serve the nearest load. And it doesn't even show up 
at bulk system level, except as a reduction of net demand at the TD interface. But the construct, the regulatory and market construct, is that energy injected at distribution level flows up to the bulk power system, and then the bulk power system sends power back down to serve the load, which then subjects those transactions to wholesale market participation charges, charges for the use of the transmission grid, um, ISO or RTO level telemetry requirements and participation requirements, a whole bunch of things that add costs to what ought to be an entirely internal to the distribution system transaction. So part of enabling us to realize these local values is to change the regulatory paradigm so that you can produce energy locally, supply local load, and that doesn't have to go through the wholesale market. Another big piece of it is that uh, I see things like microgrids created for resilience, which many customers want, which we can create at community level, viewed as private benefits only that the only way those provide a benefit are when there's a grid outage and then the customer benefits. So we don't see that as providing a system benefit, but a microgrid that can operate 24 seven, 365 days a year can be performing an optimization of supply, storage and load uh, on an ongoing basis at a very local level. We don't yet have a regulatory framework that enables that. The third item that I mentioned that I think is going to be a really big payoff is the ability to aggregate DERs, especially where storage is involved, to flatten net load profiles at the distribution circuit level, at a transformer level, at a substation level, all the way up to the TD interface. Because we know it's those peaks and valleys of the load profile that drive operational problems and capacity uh, investment needs. And to the extent we can flatten those profiles locally, then we're reducing the drivers of very costly investment. Right now, there is no mechanism to actually elicit that behavior through economic signals and through compensation for the value that that provides. So that's, that's really what I'd lay out. You do three things all at once. There's like three things I want to unpack in there and you're doing it all at <laughs> once. So I got to like, well, now we got to call back to the beginning. This is so hard. But I do I actually want to tie your last point to your first point, because I really think from a distribution utilities perspective, the efficient use of the investment by flattening load profiles, which makes my transformer run more efficiently and that investment in the transformer get amortized over more efficient energy usage is actually tied to your first point about the transmission infrastructure and your distribution utilities as related to a wholesale market. And one of the, I, I listen to a lot of podcasts because I'm a podcast enthusiast. And I listened to a episode of The Catalyst with Shale Khan where they talk about the problems and like the conundrum of electrification. Um, and he brings up this message that this moment where we have a bunch of low growth but really slow transmission infrastructure to meet that low growth is the moment for distributed energy resources and microgrids because 100%. it is the most efficient way to meet that low growth in the interim until you can get transmission there and it's really related to this maximizing the efficiency and the utilization of your distribution network i wanted to tie that in there um but i forgot the middle one because you did three and it's i could only hold two in my head at once so somebody, josh i'm oh, on let's oh, take it away yeah 
Sorry, uh, the middle is about microgrids and being able to use them as a as a resource for the grid. Yeah. Yep. Ties in there uh, nicely. Also, I I'm curious. Um, so you mentioned the need for um, regulatory frameworks to make all of this happen, but it, uh, for a, it just a, a regular um, utility, what prevents a utility from owning distributed resources? As you mentioned in the beginning, you're not talking about necessarily only customer-owned resources. Um, if it truly is the, the, the best solution um, at, at the time being, why wouldn't a utility want to do that and own the DER? Well, I think it probably would want to do that, but that's where I think the regulatory reform is is required because traditionally the utility is both the retail provider of energy and the operator of the network and maybe the owner of big generation assets and maybe the owner of big transmission and so on. And all of those things are bundled under a single regulatory construct. And we really need to pull them apart, all the way going back to the 90s when they were starting to create retail competition. Now, Australia, UK, and Texas have done this. They have the retailer function, or what we call load-serving entity in California, is a separate function from the network operator function. And the network operator function is a regulated monopoly, whereas the retailer function is a competitive activity. And so when I start to think about where we go with reforming the distribution utility, it's really let's define what we think are the natural monopoly elements, which is mainly around providing the network, maintaining it, make sure it operates well, as well as potentially running a local market at distribution level. But as the operator, they're not the participant. They don't own the resources that participate in the markets they operate, just like the ISO does not own generating resources. It it um, it really just operates the market and the network for other users. So I want to move towards that sort of a framework at distribution level. Which is our next topic. Um, and before we get to that more, because I think there is more to unpack there. Josh, did you want to talk any more about um, the distribution value of these energy resources and how as a utility we should we could think about maximizing um the, the value we we ascribe to this and when we model yeah i mean i think and this is just my own tendency is i, I totally agree with where lorenzo's going but i also think we need to think pragmatically about how we can implement it like today and so i think like the the conversation around balancing net load at different levels of the system is a great way to do that because that's something that can be achieved at least like to some level without really broad uh, regulatory reform. I mean, there's a lot that you can do just with load shaping, whether with flexible resources or with storage and some pretty basic rate mechanisms that we can use that, that, are, that we've had for a long time that help to do that. And it's just looking at how do we balance, say in rate design, like where we weight certain cost determinants. Um, so like if we were to say, look at more demand charges or more TOUs, that alone will help to like flatten a lot of this load by providing a pretty clear signal in a way that doesn't require standing up an entirely new regulatory framework and you know implementing like the the telemetry that you would need to be able to operate distribution level markets but i but at the same time i think it's absolutely true to have a you know your sights on the long term vision so i think we can do both of those at the same time which is is hard to do sometimes but i think will be really critical because what you know, as you said, Paul, you know, sort of talking about what what they were talking about in the catalyst, 
we're seeing this shift from a power planning paradigm where the law of large numbers was working to our benefit on the bulk power system. And we were using load diversity and generation diversity to manage the system and find efficiencies. But now many of our problems and constraints that we're dealing with are downstream. They're on the distribution networks, often even at the customer level. You know, when we start looking at service transformer issues, service upgrades. So now the law of large numbers does absolutely nothing for us. So we need to find a way to deal with that sort of the, the, the litany of small problems we're about to hit and how do we deal with those effectively. And that's where having some, some good rules of thumb for how to operate uh, distributed energy resources, I think, could go a long way. I would just go ahead, Almaz. Let Almaz go. Let Almaz go, Lorenzo. Let Almaz go. What I was going to say, you kind of answered my question very uh, uh, simply. It's kind of hard to do. When I was asking, why aren't utilities doing (laughs) It's hard to do. (laughs) Go ahead, Lorenzo. Sorry about that. Oh, okay. Well, I was just going to add two two quick points. One is that there are some things that could happen in the near term regarding determination at the commission level, what act or maybe legislative, what activities are competitive and what should be under the monopoly. A recent paper came out from Rob Gramlich and some some collaborators about utilities owning electric vehicle charging infrastructure. To me, that's a competitive technology and regulators ought to say no. If you're an electric utility, you're not going to be doing something that gives you a competitive edge in an area where the competition is going to bring innovation. If the utility invests in new technologies, all the risks associated with those technologies are taken on by ratepayers. And I'm talking about performance risks and obsolescence risks. If you keep the utility out of that and enable a competitive environment, then I think it will be more beneficial for ratepayers. Don't get me started started about that paper from Graham. I texted him while I was listening to those appearance (laughs) on a podcast. I was like, what are you doing? Don't get me started. Different podcast. One thing I think also just, and I think first, this is public power podcast. I think public power can do a much better job at this because public power should be indifferent on a lot of these issues in terms of ownership and just like in terms of like there's no business model reason to own the infrastructure so it's really like what is best for its customers i think there's great examples of co-ops that have done good work like looking at a mix of customer owned and community owned resources depending on the use case um uh the other thing i would just say is that um i think sometimes we conflate ownership with like the the risk management function. So like a utility can be the backstop to a risky investment that a customer is making without owning the asset. So like the example that comes to mind for me is like when low income customers are owning DERs, like there have been some investor owned utilities who said, oh, low income customers aren't credit worthy. We need to own those assets. And I I would dramatically push back on that to say, one, low-income customers need to own those assets more than anybody because they can build wealth. But two, you can still be like the, the, the backstop for that asset. You can help to support them and underwrite and de-risk their investment without owning it, right? Like you can still, you can, you know, put in offtake arrangements or um, waive certain requirements to the customer or help provide additional funding in some way that underwrites that investment in a way that gives it, de-risks it without owning it. Um, and I think that, that that's an important thing to consider as well. 
good. And I like it. We got we could it sounds like we could talk about this for like three hours itself, and maybe we should get together and talk about it. I did want to tie to last time before we transition to the next topic. Anna Summer brought up for good utility planning, best practices in power planning, the need to model reliability from the distribution and use to through the whole gr macro grid system. And this is a way I think we can start as electric utilities and public power utilities thinking holistically about the value of distributed energy resources by incorporating the reliability benefits of these microsystems in our planning. And that is, to me, a near-term way where if you start planning with that paradigm, you'll start implementing business, business decisions within that paradigm. And with that, we need to transition to the next topic. Take it away, Almaz. Okay, in a series of reports on distributed energy resource integration commissioned and published by the Energy Systems Integration Group, uh, there was a discussion of open distribution networks employed in Australia and the UK. Both employ something like a distribution network service provider or distribution system operators that are distinct from a retail electric service provider. Um, Lorenzo, can you speak to lessons learned from Australia and the UK on how the distribution system is organized compared to how it's organized in the US and why the UK and Australian model might be better for DER integration? Sure. Um, I alluded to that a moment ago, um, and, and I think it comes down to thinking about the distinction between what are more beneficial as competitive functions versus things that are natural monopoly functions. And we've inherited this 20th century concept of the total supply chain of electricity is a natural monopoly function and it can all be integrated, which I think is valid for a pre-DER world when all when all the bulk power all the power generation is at the bulk system but we saw that breakdown in the late 80s and 90s with the formation of competitive wholesale markets now i think it's time with the DER revolution to really rethink that uh, UK and Australia have done that separation a long time ago. I argued back in the 90s when California was restructuring that we should have separated those functions in the utilities as well because part of California's objective was to create what they called direct access, which was retail access by customers to alternative retail providers. But it never really took off for residential customers and it had other problems. So this is not the solution to everything. Both the UK and the Australian models, these are still works in progress. They're not finished yet, but I think that starting point of separating the network from the retail provider makes it easier to focus the utility network operator specifically on becoming an enabling platform for DERs to interconnect, to participate, to provide services, to get compensated for those services, and to manage the interface between the distribution network and the bulk power system. That's another core function. And, and that really concentrates the distribution utility on functions where a natural monopoly, a regulated structure makes sense. Hmm. I listen to a lot of podcasts and uh, David Roberts from Volts recently interviewed um, Saul Griffith on Australia's success in the distributed energy resources, specifically rooftop solar. How related do we think your, what's your hypothesis? I'll, I'll transition to you, Josh. 
and maybe you want to talk about something else, but yeah. how related yeah. do you think it is that they have this model of distributed, what do they call op-ed or something? It's not op-ed, it's something else. But this model of like disassociating that distributed system and network model from, uh, how, how related is that to their success in solar? I, I mean, I, I think it's a, it's a huge part. I mean, there, I mean, there are a lot of factors that drove Australia's growth in, in distributed solar. I mean, another big one just simply being like its permitting process and it's much more streamlined interconnection process, much more streamlined. So, I mean, their soft costs are just like a fraction of what we pay in the United States. So that has gone a long way, but the this indifference that that Lorenzo is talking about in terms of whether generation comes from distribution or whether it comes from wholesale that is a huge factor as well um i think something that australia has done particularly well as of late is clarifying this obligation to serve requirement on the der side as well so that is instead of just saying you have an obligation to serve on load it is as a distribution network operator i have an obligation to serve on gen and then i can sit and say okay what's my rev rec for that how do i account for that and i can build tariffs and cost recovery structures that are coherent and like like clearly and transparently treat them the der's in a way that that is really on a fair footing as opposed to conflating them with retail rates the way we do in the united states and you get into all these political arguments around them and and different rate designs that that are conflating the retail functions with the distribution functions in ways that are unclear. Interesting. You answered my question before I got to, to ask it, which was to, to say, um, um, are they holding the distributed energy resources to the same um, standard as the, um, and I guess if, if, if the grid really is indifferent to where the, the, the resource is coming from, then it will do just that, so. Yeah, and it makes, I mean, to Lorenzo's point on the physics, it makes, it. it it allows the utility to have the conversations around wheeling and you know transport that that are very difficult for utility today it's not their fault it's just like the way that they're regulated and the way that their their rules are in place to, in terms of how they do cost recovery doesn't allow them to have conversations about behind the meter resources in the same way that they can with say an open access transmission tariff on the on the wholesale side um so I think that's really critical to to allowing for a more balanced conversation around those issues. And how do they recover the cost of transmission and distribution? Um, like, how's that paid for? Well, well, so they're handled through network charges. Network charges are handled separately. Um, in terms of how DERs are recovered, there are export tariffs that net out like any sort of charges that go onto the network, and then retailers handle the, the energy component of that. So those are distinct and then bundled in, within a bill. Um, so it varies a bit by context, but um, I think it's helpful because you can Basically, you like I said, you you have a rev rec effectively for your export in the same way. It's it's effectively like an open access distribution tariff. Um, so it, revenue it's requirement, not exactly, rev rec, revenue requirement. Right. Sorry, right. oh, it's public power underground. Everybody knows what a rev rec is, right? <laughs> <laughs> if they're here, so, they know how deep we get in the weeds. So probably uh, right, <laughs> right. So and I think I mean I don't want to speak for Lorenzo, but I feel like. That is like sort of the ideal that we're trying to work towards is to, to if we can mirror or 
approximate what we're doing with transmission today, um, that would be fantastic because that would allow us to have this sort of equal um, competitive and open uh, access to the network in the same way that we see on transmission networks. It sounded yeah. like part of the problem to get there is that the jurisdictional complications around yes. FERC and state jurisdictions and, and stuff like that. Am I right about that, Lorenzo? That's part of the impediment to adopting something like that in the U.S.? Well, um, I think there are some jurisdictional things that need to be worked out. Clearly, this this idea of a, a, a bright line at the TD interface doesn't work when you have distribution side resources participating in the wholesale market. So there's some things to work out there. But I think it really does start with the states uh, where, where the reform of the distribution utility will start. And I'm, the way I describe it in a high-level term is to take what we've done in ISO and RTO markets where you have uh, an entity that's responsible for operating the system and operating the markets under an open access or non-discriminatory terms of service, develop the counterpart for that on distribution. What does that look like? How does it work? What's its revenue model? How does it make profits if it's a profit-making entity? How does it charge for services? How does it pay for the services it procures? All of those, there's a lot of details, but it's basically creating that distribution level counterpart. Okay, well said. And I think we can transition from uh, a goal, a future goal of what we can strive for. And the next topic, which is what can we do in the near term to make this happen faster and to get these systems on more effectively? So take it away, Almas. All right, and sure. Volt's episode last week was an episode with, with Saul Griffith, an Australian who helped found Rewiring America and who also wrote one of Paul's favorite books, Electrify. In the episode, they discussed the success of the rooftop solar industry in Australia. Saul described a two-day turnaround from a customer signing up for rooftop solar to it actually being installed on their roof. So this is in stark contrast with the three weeks it takes between signing up for solar and it being installed in the U.S. Um, if utilities want to match Three months. I wrote that wrong. Three months, Amaz. Three months. I wrote that wrong. I'm so sorry. I interrupted you, but keep going. Three months. Uh, all right, so this is in stark contrast with the three months it takes between signing up for solar and it being installed in the U.S. If utilities want to maximize the deployment of rooftop solar in their service territory in as quick a time as possible, what is your 80-20 advice on how to make the most progress towards deployment as quickly as possible? So... so yeah, I, I would be remiss. It was perfect timing. So uh, if folks are not familiar with the Interstate Renewable Energy Council or IREX, um, uh, voluminous writings on interconnection best practices, I highly recommend them. They just came out with their, they have a, an annual document that comes out called the Model Interconnection Procedures, where they basically look across the country and say, what are like the best practices for interconnect, distribution interconnection uh, in uh, if you want to accelerate sort of DERs and reduce costs and things like that. So highly recommend it. It just came out, I think, yesterday or the day before. They have a webinar on the 7th of September. I'm not sure when this will be out, so that may come before or after this. Uh, but um, highly recommend that. There's a lot of good, good information there and a really great organization. Um, I would say one of the first and foremost things that IREC stresses and I completely agree with, first off, is to just have a statewide process. So not all states 
actually regulate interconnection statewide. They just sort of let it to, leave it to the utilities and say, each utility figure out what you're going to do. And I understand that that's easier as a regulator, but it's actually very problematic as an installer. It increases the soft costs for those installers because they have to figure out what the, each utility that they operate in, what are they going to do? How are they going to get through the process? And it's bespoke to each one. So that alone, just streamlining across the board can, can have a, a, a huge impact. The other thing I think is just um, in general, identifying a clear and as expansive as possible fast tracking process. So, and the reason I bring this up is because both for the installers and for the utilities, it's it can just help them focus on the areas that actually matter. So there are uh, rule 21, while not perfect and extremely long, which is the California interconnection pursuit, statewide interconnection procedure, um, uh, it has a pretty long list of items that can be used to screen resources that basically fast tracks them. Says, look, if you meet these criteria, we don't need to look at you. We'll just send somebody out and, and verify at the end, but you're all good to go. Um, some of those uh, involve, um, for instance, uh, screening zero export resources. So if your resource isn't going to export, but needs to be coupled, so long as it has a compliant inverter, it should be fine. Um, for uh, certain uh, Customer classes, there'll be a screening based on nameplate capacity. Um, and I agree with IREC here that like the best way to do that is as a percentage of minimum load, not of peak load as historically has been done. So that is look at the minimum load through AMI or like at least even if you don't have that just for a customer class based on load research and say, okay, this is a residential customer. They maybe have a minimum load of, you know, average annual load of, uh, you know, one KW, I'm putting in a, you know, I'm only expected to put in a tiny little solar install, maybe it's fine. Um, but more importantly, especially when you get to commercial and industrial customers where you have pretty large minimum loads, often solar installations never exceed their minimum load to begin with. There's no reason that you need to worry about interconnection. Um, the other thing that I would say is just particularly, and, and Nehruk and, and others have been really clear about this, is just having clear and easily deployed guidelines around uh, compliance with uh, IEEE 1547 2018. So that's the latest smart inverter standards. Um, uh, this wouldn't be an energy geek podcast if we didn't cite an IEEE standard at some point. Gotta get IEEE uh, in here. Yep. Right? Um, so uh, the, the big thing here is that, at least in my experience, I've seen basically folks on either end of the spectrum. Either folks are like, we don't need to worry about smart inverters. We'll deal with it later. It's too complicated. Or you have utilities going the other side who are saying, you're going to implement the standard. You have to do it in this bespoke way that we're 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 uh, requiring it. And we're going to actively manage things like your control. So we need to integrate into your our derms. And we're going to have real-time control of all of your set points. And we're going to have this like, you know, expansive control. Both are problematic because one doesn't get the value of the smart inverter standards. And on the other side, it's almost, it's either extremely costly for the customer installer, or it's just completely unimplementable to begin with because most utilities don't have those systems in place today. Um, so I think the big thing here is just being pragmatic and saying, you know, let's put out the smart inverter standard as it is today, putting some guidelines into those interconnections for a utility saying at this point in time, we would like to see you say, enable it for Volvar, 
you know, or volt watt. And at this set point, threshold set point, just something as simple as that, allow that inverter to operate autonomously. That NREL has done some great research in this regard. Just doing something like that gets you like 80, 90% of the value that you need and has virtually no impact on the customer, even under extreme conditions. So the, the fact that we don't rely on some of these more like simple rules of thumb is, is really disappointing. And I think we could get a lot farther. Yeah, I like it. You did the same thing Lorenzo does, which is do three I'm things so at once, which makes it super hard to follow up on the individual <laughs> topics. I love that we got to IEEE and having standards for inverters yeah. because some of our listeners are very much on the, we got to be careful about inverters. This is a security constrained system. We need to make sure we maintain voltage and frequency yeah. and we need to make sure our inverters can manage that. And uh, But Lorenzo, anything in the 8020 on what we can do quickly that you wanted to get in on or follow up? on what Josh said. Regarding interconnection, no, I think he covered it very well, if that's what you're talking about. Anything else on just like, how do we how do we do the near-term thing, the simple rule of thumb thing easier? Well, I mean, to me, the what I see is a real need is to enable DERs to be more commercially viable by defining services that they can provide and get compensated for. I think that's a really important near-term thing. And I think utilities and commissions and regulators can start working on that. And especially this load flattening idea, enable a virtual power plant to be able to coordinate the activity of resources to flatten a net load profile and earn value for that because they are avoiding capacity investment. Yeah. So. Uh- Talk a little bit more about those services, because right now we think of it as like tariffs, like we'll pay you for your energy and and that's it. Uh, but like the other services they can provide, you mentioned one load flattening services. Is and, there others that you would also, think of? Go ahead, Amaz. Oh, I was gonna say those services and also how you can justify the payment for them. Is it an avoided cost or is this um, taking money from someone like competitive? So another um, entity or resource that would have provided that service it does not get used and then the DER gets used. So yeah, yeah, so you're you're asking three questions at once. So oh. I'll, I'll try and try and pick some. Um, you only get I, one answer. That's the point. Okay. You can ask three questions, you get one answer. Okay. Well, well there's a conceptual um, mindset shift that I think is required. We're used to thinking about the supply sector, which is this big industry that produces megawatt hours and kilowatts hours and delivers them. And then we're thinking about individual customers. So we focus on rate design to get customers to behave in certain way or to allocate costs. And I think what has been missing and what DERs enable is a mindset that really starts to look more at aggregated behavior, collective behavior, community making decisions. When you think about a microgrid, you can have a little electrical area with 20 or 30 or 100 customers and the coordinator coordination of their behavior has value that we don't recognize because all of the regulatory framework is focused on individual customers and how they behave. Okay, I will say, uh, and like a follow-up to your point, Lorenzo, and Almaz's question, I think for utilities, we always think about settlements and how do we balance our books? Where are we getting our revenues from when we make a payment? Where the, like, how do we make that actually balance out it for settlements purposes? And I think to your point, Lorenz, Lorenzo, we need to rethink some of where those revenues come from. But ultimately, we do need to make sure the, the books balance. Um, 
the book's balance at the end of the day. We're going to take a break. And when we come back, we're going to close out with legislature for a day. Amaz's unfair, insightful question of the week and Josh's closing thoughts. Public Power Underground is brought to you by NWPPA. The Northwest Public Power Association believes in the power of training and education. Every year, more than 6,500 public power employees learn and network at our classes, webinars, workshops, and conferences. NWPPA offers more than 200 event, 250 events, wowzer, to choose from in areas such as leadership, engineering, operations, accounting, and finance, communications, and many more. Sometimes this very podcast, Public Power Underground, is broadcast live from one of our events. We call that being more powerful together. What will you learn this year? Find an event that's right for you at nwppa.org forward slash catalog. That's nwppa.org forward slash catalog. Up next is a Today I Learned or TIL segment I call Almaz's Insightful Question of the Week, where Almaz asks our guests an unfair, unfiltered, and unscripted question. What do you got for us this week, Almaz? Okay, so in your opening statement, Lorenzo, you mentioned DERs as being necessary and inevitable, and I actually agree with you. Um, but they're not they're not always the best in every situation. So I'm asking you to to what's the under what circumstances would DERs be a poor decision? So I'm essentially asking you to make the most likely case for minimizing DER. Well. DERs, especially if you're looking at renewable energy, they require the primary resources, which is solar exposure, wind resources, whether it's water or geothermal or whatever. My notion is that uh, we want to try and build DERs as far as possible to meet local needs. The, the need for the bulk power system doesn't go away, and I never mean to imply that, that, but the bulk power system becomes more of the residual supply source after what you can do with DERs. And that's going to vary depending on the location, depending on what climate zone you're in or what latitude and, and so on. So I think you just plan in terms of what's the context uh, of the community that you're planning for. Josh? Yeah, I mean, I think. And I don't think this is a problem with DERs. I think it's just how we've implemented the policies and chosen to sort of roll out DERs here. But um, I, I think we need to stop treating DERs as if it's like a consumer good, <laughs> like as if it's like a, a like a toy that you can buy if you feel like it. That sort of approach, as opposed to necessary infrastructure, I think left unchecked can lead to highly inequitable outcomes because you're effectively saying, look, every individual, if they have the means voluntarily acquires these resources. I'm not saying this is what happens all the time because there are lots of policies that help correct for this. Um, and I think there's a lot more we could do in this regard um, through like codes and standards and you know uh, subsidies. Um, but, and I, I actually, this is a beef I have a bit with how the U.S. implements energy efficiency as well. But this idea that like we just use rebates and like like set like use like standard retail channels to deploy what is effectively critical energy infrastructure seems sort of silly to me. Mm. Yeah, but you didn't answer the question, Josh. I'm calling you out. When is no, the I, when is, answer answer Almaz's question? I, when is the DR not the best solution? Come on. When it's just like a free market, like, oh, yeah, rich people get to do it. Nobody else does. That's stupid. Oh. Like, I don't I don't buy that. I think that's ridiculous. 
Okay, that's good. I like that answer. Okay. Is that good? Are you okay with it, Almaz? I love it. Yes, thank you. Okay. We're going to do one last lightning round. We are running out of time. One last lightning round. It's it's our king for a day or queen for a day segment. Today, I'm calling it legislature for a day. Um, Lorenzo, what is one policy you would adopt to enable distributed energy resource uh, flourishing within the U.S. if you had legislative power for the day? I would say a community energy bill of rights, which is the right of a community, a local government, an agency, a tribe to deploy and operate electricity resources to meet their local needs and be interconnected to the larger system in order to transact. Well, and good callback because you talked about that in your opening monologue. So good callback, Lorenzo. Good. Josh, what's yours? What's your one legislature for a day to enable the uh, flourishing of distributed energy resources? I really struggle with this one, but uh, mine is uh, federal building energy permitting. So stay with me a second. Um, basically, I want the interconnection and the permitting process to be dictated at the federal. The fact that we do all of this in like podunk little AHJs, sorry, um, uh, uh, authority, what does AHJ stand for? Permitting agency. Yeah, having basically. Yeah, so authority having jurisdiction. So um, is a major, I mean, we talked about Australia. Australia pays like a buck, buck 25 a watt to install rooftop solar. It's like three bucks here and it's been there forever. Has nothing to do with equipment, has everything to do with soft costs, installation, permitting. It's a disaster. And I don't think that's isolated to solar. Same thing on HVAC, same thing on like like uh, water heating, electric vehicle charging. We need to have federal legislation that says, this is the way it's done. Here's a federal clearinghouse. It's streamlined and it's held accountable to those timelines. It says, it's gotta be two days. And if it's not two days, you're in big trouble. Uh, but I love it, Josh. <laughs> Amaz, you're up next. Amaz, what would you do? You know, I'm, I'm not sure if this necessarily is going to, um, increase distributed energy resources, but I just keep harping on my same point, which is that I believe that grid infrastructure, um, at least uh, the amount that we need to serve basic needs is a, is a, is a public good. And, and, and so I would enact a law that, that treated it and priced it as such. Love it. Uh, I actually have the opposite view from Josh. Um, and it was actually inspired by the same commentary uh, around the episode with David Roberts. And that's like, get the government off my roof was a, a phrase that Saul <laughs> Griffith used on that podcast uh, that I found very compelling. It's like, hey, if I'm going to put solar on my roof, like re remove some of the permitting that I need in order to do that. Um, interconnection still has some requirements because it's connected to uh, the security constrained needs of that grid. But get the government off my roof. Let me put my solar panels on it, which is, I think, the opposite of your point, Josh. I, I think we're getting to the same spirit, which is just I mean, I my my view is basically just that, like, the feds at least can, like, standardize and, like, keep it a little yeah. lot cleaner, because I think that's a huge part of the problem is we see so many barriers arise from, like, very small local jurisdictions having to take on and build their own processes. That Maybe but, we can yeah. align with, like, just plug-and-play standards. Give me some yes, plug-and-play standards. I IEEE, give me some plug-and-play standards for these inverters and this, this permitting process so that we can not have bespoke I love that you use that twice, bespoke uh, <laughs> jurisdictional requirements. Are we Excellent. ready? Fantastic. You feel good about it? 
I, I really, before we transition to Josh's closing thoughts, I want to make sure you all feel valued and appreciated. Uh, Lorenzo, do you feel seen, heard, valued, and appreciated? Absolutely. I enjoyed this conversation immensely, and it was really good. Yeah. Do you feel appreciated by the electric utility uh, sector? I mean, uh, uh, us electric utility enthusiasts value your insights here. I, I do. And, and in fact, I was pleased that Dave Roberts mentioned me in a tweet the other night saying he nominates me for the electric industry Mount Rushmore. I love it. Whoa. I love it. Second, second, second vote. Nice. Uh, Josh, yep. Josh, do you feel seen, heard, valued, and appreciated? Oh, absolutely. More than I deserve. Good. Almaz, you know I appreciate you. Was this fun for you, Almaz? Of course, of course. Josh and Lorenzo are my favorite. So, yes, this was great. Okay. The feeling is mutual. To our listeners, while you aren't seen or heard, you are valued and appreciated. Public Power Underground is a production of News Data and Seattle City Light. You don't have to be subscribed to News Data's weekly newsletter to get this podcast, but it sure makes the podcast make a lot more sense. Now we're closing today's episode out with closing thoughts from Josh Keeling. The next 10 years are absolutely critical to us achieving our climate goals. This puts the utility industry in an awkward position where planning and deployment have to come together much more seamlessly. We will need to deploy resources to solve problems today while also ensuring that we lay the foundation for an efficient, equitable, and sustainable future. Too often we find ourselves in a situation where we're arguing over the false choice of distributed versus centralized resources. In the paradigm we now find ourselves, the answer to both resources is an emphatic yes. Do centralized resources provide a superior LCOE from a simple cost assessment perspective? Sure. But no matter your viewpoint or your forecast, there are at least three factors that centralized resources can't adequately address on their own. Transmission constraints, distribution reliability, and electrification. There are a few things that the Public Power Underground likes to talk about more than transmission. And while there much is being done to eke out more capacity with grid-enhancing technologies and fast-tracking permitting of new lines, I think we can all agree that 10 years is pretty fast in transmission terms. So we're going to be short for the foreseeable future. No choice but to build resources closer to load pockets, particularly when it comes to flexible resources like demand response, storage, that help improve the utilization of existing capacity at the TD interface. As energy nerds, we love to get hung up on resource adequacy, but what people care about is reliability. And reliability is worse now than ever due to extreme weather, historic underinvestment and distribution, and an increasingly complex grid. Bringing power to customers helps to ensure that they have at least some amount of reliability through extreme events that are becoming all too commonplace. As planners and policymakers, we need to start treating reliable electrical service as what it is, human right. Not simply something we need to target on average metrics like safety or safety. On top of all this, electrification is coming at us fast. The Western states are looking at fully electric mandates across transportation and buildings that will strain the electric grid in new ways. While bulk resources are important, they'll do nothing to address the death by a thousand cuts that will come on the distribution network. In a statewide analysis of California, Kavala recently found that unmanaged electrification will potentially lead to $50 billion in distribution upgrades by 2035, including 1.5 million overlaid trans service transformers. Improving capacity utilization at the site will be critical to ensure that utilities can lean into an all-electric future. 
Most new load interconnect and service upgrade processes at utilities today are highly manual, which presents a barrier to customers looking to electrify and to the deployment of innovative new solutions. This will need to change. There are things that we can do today that will help make this a reality. Streamlining the interconnection process and permitting will go a long way. Enabling smart inverters that will support the grid autonomously out of the box. Implementing dynamic rates, even if it's just simple type TOUs. Establishing a process for engaging aggregators and DER providers in constructive ways. Tracking simple metrics for each customer, like daytime, minimum daytime load, available ampacity for electrification, minimum export capacity. Streamlining data access. These are all no regrets actions that can be taken today with readily available tools and data. As we look to the future, we need to start taking a truly bottoms up approach to planning. This doesn't just mean building bigger models with more granular data, though that certainly doesn't hurt. It also means taking a more decentralized approach to the process overall. How do we meet reliability at the customer level with the same rigor we bring to the bulk system? This will require less top-down procurement-focused approaches and more collaborative community and market-based approaches. Utilities need to embrace the role of the enabler, not the dictator of the energy future. Planning for the energy system of tomorrow needs to be more like horticulture and less like engineering. And come on, what's more Pacific Northwest than growing the community energy garden of the future? So let's start digging in. Into the laughter through thick and through thin for public power. Public Power Underground is a production of Seattle City Light and News Data. The views expressed are our own and not the official views of Seattle City Light, Tacoma Power, News Data or the organization of the guests also appearing on Public Power Underground. Public Power Underground is electric utility and electric utility adjacent topics from a power department's perspective. Today's episode was written and produced by Paul Dockery, Amaz Nagesh, Lorenzo Kristoff, and Josh Keeling, and it's edited and published by the stellar team at Pioneer Utility Resources with sound mixing by Lucas Smith and video editing by Brendan Delzer. If you are interested in having an episode published or edited or mixed, please reach out to our friends at Pioneer Utility Resources who are uh, done a great job producing this episode and all of the episodes this season. Our theme song, Roll On Enthusiast, was rewritten, performed, and recorded by Aaron Guillory and Ian Bledsoe. You can find Public Power Underground on YouTube, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app. Please share with electric utility enthusiasts like us and give us a rating and review on your app of choice if you enjoyed the content. It helps other energy enthusiasts like us find us. Public Power Underground for electric utility enthusiasts. Public Power Underground, it's work to watch. <laughs>